Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, December the 20th, and this is the final Lancet podcast of 2013. But fear not, we will be back early in the new year. As befits our final issue of the year, this week we're going to focus on our Wackley Prize essay for 2013. Here is my colleague Nikolai Humphreys reading this year's Wackley Prize essay. The Measuring Cup by Nikki Matani, read by Nikolai Humphreys. 2012. Use the girl from the clinic? That place on Jefferson? Stepping back from the front door, I looked up and saw a man's face protruding out from over the wooden board of Miss Lily Watson's broken upstairs window. Though I had visited Miss Watson's home many times before, and met many of her grandchildren, neighbours, and transient roommates, I had never seen this man before. Yes, that's me, I replied. Have you been to the clinic before? No, ma'am, he yelled back. But I reckon I oughta. Hold on now. His face disappeared behind the wooden board. It was discomforting to be left alone on the semi-abandoned street. I didn't fear the solitude, but I wasn't sure whether the man would return, which left my feelings of purpose in jeopardy. I pulled out my cell phone. It was 4.30pm. I had to be back to campus by 5 for a meeting with my research mentor. It would also probably help if I washed my face before that, considering the sweat I could now feel slowly beating up on my temples. The screeching sound of the front door disrupted my train of thought, and the man reappeared in front of me an infant bundled in his right arm and two naked toddlers peering out from behind his baggy jeans. "'What'd you say you need?' he asked. "'I was looking for Miss Lily Watson. She hasn't been picking up her phone, and I wanted to check in to see if she's been making it to her appointments. Is she home?' "'No, she's been gone all day,' he replied. "'I'll let her know you came. Her phone don't work now.' "'Thank you, sir,' I replied. It was almost a routine. I'd visited Miss Watson's home five times in the last eight days, and she hadn't been home once.' What did you say your name was again? Jimmy Watson. I'm her nephew, he replied, an upbeat, buoyant rhythm to his voice. Upon hearing this, I remembered my last conversation with Lily three weeks earlier. We had been sitting on the steps of her row house in East Baltimore, precisely where I had met Jimmy today. Her eyebrows skewed inward, nearly touching her nose, and her enlarged pupils fixated on the street in front of us. Silently, she let her head drop down between her shoulders and covered her face with both hands. She had just finished explaining to me that her nephew would be returning from prison in a few weeks after a 20-year incarceration. If she didn't let him stay at home, he'd have nowhere else to go. But I don't want no needles coming back here, she repeated, quivering fear in her eyes. After months of having worked together, I knew Miss Watson's medical history better than that of any of my family members. An obese 47-year-old African-American woman with diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol, she also suffered from a history of severe depression. When I had first met her at the clinic over a year ago, her 18-year-old son had just been killed. Her sister had stolen a month's worth of her social security income to supply a heroin addiction, and her then-husband was on trial for sexual battery against another woman. Though insured through Medicaid, with no reliable mode of transportation or cell phone, it was unsurprising that Miss Watson had difficulty keeping regular doctor's appointments or refilling prescriptions. September 24, 2012 I was five weeks into the second year of medical school, and I'd spent the majority of my day going from place to place, crossing off items on my Gmail-constructed to-do list. Read cardio notes. Meet with Dr. Jacobs. Work out. Finish Thulman Grant. A superficial feeling of satisfaction accompanied each click of my mouse as I crossed out each entry. Though admittedly shallow, it helped ameliorate the cringing guilt I felt when reading over my list's last and chronically unmarked item. Home visit for L.W. 
though my reasons for abbreviating Lily Watson to LW had been out of respect for patient privacy, I later realized that the nomenclature also made it easier to forget that she was a real person. My goal with Miss Watson all along had been to provide enhanced support in the form of health coaching and motivational interviewing so that she might visit a doctor more regularly and fill her prescriptions, which had been long overdue. But her phone number changed on a weekly basis, leaving home visits as our primary means of communication. Once the school year became busy, my email inbox cluttered with the more immediate concerns of research abstract deadlines, organ systems examinations, and scholarly presentations. I let myself lose sight of Miss Watson. I became phased by the insistent late nights of studying, pressure to publish research, and the often competitive nature that seems to fuel the atmosphere of medical academia. Four weeks of lost communication had passed since I'd last seen Miss Watson, but having a couple of hours to spare, I finally attempted to visit her again with Mike, a fellow volunteer at the clinic. When we arrived, her house was lively, filled with relatives of all ages, and, to my surprise, Miss Watson was home. Cigarette in hand, she sat with us on the steps outside her house. I haven't gone to the doctor yet, she said bluntly, before Mike and I had the chance to voice a question. Just don't feel like walking there. Though, a lackluster argument, it was a valid one. Her doctor's office was two miles away, a lengthy distance for a sick woman to walk, especially in a neighborhood often plagued by violence. We gave her a bus pass to make it to the office safely and proceeded to discuss some of her medical problems. She had been having flank pain and dark urine over the past few weeks, suggesting possible kidney disease, a growing and painful cyst on her left knee, and depressive, suicidal thoughts with vivid nightmares. When I asked if she thought it might be time for her to see a psychiatrist, again, she softly but sincerely answered, yes. After sitting with Miss Watson over the course of the next hour, going over what she would discuss with her doctor to ensure that she obtained the correct referrals and making plans for how and when, we would communicate the following day. Mike and I started to walk back to the clinic. Satisfied by the home visit, I said instinctively, I think that went well. He turned to me, bewildered. Really? Caught off guard. I thought again about what had just happened. Our patient confided in us that she had been having suicidal ideation, and it was up to us to ensure that she received proper follow-up care. My shoulders suddenly felt heavy. I understood what Miss Watson's situation entailed. Why, then, did I summarize the home visit as having gone well? And why did it feel almost like a reflex? What had I become? As I repeat the sequence of events in my head, I realized that what I had been referring to with the words went well was not Miss Watson's encounter at all, but rather my own. I was superficially contented that I had finally been able to reconnect with this client after four weeks of lost communication. One more item on my to-do list had been checked off. I was successful in carrying out my task. Yet medicine will always be far more than a series of tasks. And now I begin to wonder whether this is not only my problem, but our healthcare system's problem. We are content when we complete our jobs, diagnosing disease states, prescribing medications, performing surgeries, providing counseling, making referrals, checking boxes to fill out electronic chart notes. But in the midst of all this, do we also sometimes forget that our job is foremost? to partner with patients. November 6, 2012. In between the clicks of my mouse and the haphazard typing, my eyes gazed toward the digital clock on my computer screen. 8.41 p.m. Operations meetings were supposed to end at 8 p.m. I had finished reviewing all of the weekend's clinic screening notes 
and I had sent all of my famously passive-aggressive emails to those volunteers whose chart notes did not meet expectations. What had originally drawn me to the clinic and what had motivated me to spend the majority of my time there during my second year of medical school was being surrounded by a group of people who were sincerely dedicated to helping empower low-income East Baltimore patients. But today, my optimism was dampened by obtrusive thoughts, uncertainty over whether medical school was where I belonged, guilt over the marginal score on my last examination, resentment over the fact that I was missing out on attending the presidential election party that all of my friends were at. Most demoralizing, I felt doubt over whether our efforts in the clinic were meaningful. For many patients, sustaining changes in health practices felt near impossible. Even after I began regarding home visits, phone check-ins, and clinic shifts, purely as encounters of care rather than items on a to-do list, Miss Watson's engagement with care appeared to improve rather little. Though she would speak enthusiastically about her health goals, and we were progressing in minimizing her barriers for access, she continued to miss appointments frequently, resulting in subsequent lack of adherence to medications and persistent states of sickness. I felt as though care was no longer working for us, Although I had many hours of concentrated service to show for my efforts, I would likely have failed many of the outcomes-based measures in quality care that often serve as extrinsic motivators in current medical practice. As I walked back to the bus stop from the clinic that night, I ran into Miss Watson on a street corner. It was dark and below freezing, but she met me with open arms and a hardening smile. As we embraced, I saw tears in her eyes. I just voted for the first time in my life, she whispered, showing me the American flag sticker on her sweatshirt. It feels good taking control of my life. I could feel warmth pouring back into my face, my fingers and my toes. Maybe there are things we just can't measure. Nikki Matani is a third-year medical student at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. During her time in the medical school, she has volunteered and served as a 2012-13 clinical director for Charm City Clinic, a non-profit organization founded and operated by graduate students and young professionals in collaboration with community leaders in East Baltimore. The organization's mission is to accompany residents of low-income communities in Baltimore through the often complex process of attaining and sustaining access to high-quality health care. Appropriate permissions have been obtained in compliance with HIPAA and all names changed out of respect for patient privacy. Many thanks to Nikolai and to Nikki, author of that fabulous piece of writing. Also, do look out for our photographic highlights of 2013 in our double issue. Thanks for listening this year. See you next time.